My name is Alan Pavlin, and this is a talk about the Danish film director Carl Theodor Dreyer, whom I've called the Great Dane. Carl Dreyer, who lived 1889 to 1968, ranks for me among the very greatest filmmakers. Born in Copenhagen and raised in a Lutheran environment, Dreyer brought a strong spiritual input to most of his major films, an input generally critical of the church authorities in the places where they are set. He was one of the most passionately feminist directors. He also developed a disorientating editing style which make his films fascinating to watch. Here I'll consider what I take to be his major films, namely the five features made over the lengthy period 1928 to 1964, excluding the minor 1945 drama Two People. Some of his eight earlier silent films are well regarded by many, notably Master of the House from 1925, which is a comedy where the woman teaches her husband a well-deserved lesson, but it was The Passion of Joan of Arc, 1928, which stamped him as a genuinely great director. This film originated from the popularity in France of Master of the House. On being invited there, he proposed three subjects for a film, and it was only by drawing lots that Joan of Arc was decided upon. She is probably the most filmed of all historical characters. Interestingly, two, two of my other favourite filmmakers, Bresson and Rossellini, have also filmed her story, and there's another fine version by Jacques Rivette. Dreyer cast René Falconetti, a little-known cabaret artiste he had seen, and, and in her only film... She produced what many regarded as the greatest ever screen performance. In a film consisting largely of close-ups of faces, with no use whatsoever of makeup, it is literally warts and all, she displays a range of emotions so overwhelming that it is difficult to imagine any viewer failing to find The Passion of Joan of Arc a shattering experience. This is especially so when it's accompanied by appropriate music. I've seen it with full orchestra and with piano, both live performances. Dreyer's radical editing results in the viewer never being able to envisage the courtroom as a whole. He breaks all the filmic conventions about continuity and we're never sure of where the characters are positioned in relation to each other. This enables us to concentrate more on the intertitled dialogue based directly on the trial transcript and in particular on the raw emotions being experienced by Joan. It's no distraction that Falconetti was actually some 15 years older than her character is supposed to be. Ingrid Bergman was some 20 years older than the Rossellini version. 
The film also features a memorable performance as a monk by the radical drama theorist Antonin Artaud. Joan is one of the strong, heroic women Dreyer would have at the centre of his later films. Anne in Day of Wrath from 1943, Inga in Odette from 1955, and Gertrude in his 1964 film of that name. But first he would make Vampire, 1932, sometimes described as the greatest of all horror movies. Based on a ghost story by Sheridan Lefanu, this is a dreamlike, shadow-filled story of a man encountering a vampire, making little narrative sense from a conventional viewpoint, but drawing the viewer into it as a kind of sleepwalking experience. Dreyer stated that he was trying to show that horror comes from within, not from outside forces. In Day of Wrath, Dreyer returned to a more conventional tale set in the Denmark of 1623. Anne is the young wife of a much older widowed clergyman who has a grown-up son. The two young people fall in love and when her husband suddenly dies, Anne is branded as a witch. She even comes to believe this herself. Dreyer shot the film in the style of paintings of the time it is set, but his editing is more conventional than his usual radical approach. Composition and lighting are superb. Because of when the film was made, it can be seen as an implicit protest against the Nazis, rather like another historical film of the time, Marcel Carnet's Les Enfants du Paradis. Audette is a fascinating and much-discussed film. Set in early 20th century Jutland, it tells of a robustly Lutheran farmer living with his three sons who all give him problems. The eldest, married to Inga, has lost his faith. The middle one, Johannes, has gone mad and thinks he is Christ. And the youngest is in love with the daughter of the leader of a rival sect. Inga, with a young daughter and pregnant again, is the strong, heroic woman who constantly tries to bring the warring factions together. When she dies in childbirth, all are devastated until Johannes, having apparently regained his wits, prays for Inga's recovery and lo and behold, she rises from her coffin. Put like this, Audet's ending seems absurd and manipulative. The miracle, however, is intensely moving and has been argued over at length. For me, the most ludicrous interpretation is one suggested in an interview by Dreyer himself, namely that it is something to do with the ideas of modern physics, the uncertainty principle, or chaos theory, by which the particles making up Inga's body somehow restore to life by pure chance. But perhaps the interpretation doesn't matter, because the point of the film is that, through this woman living among all the squabbling men, not only is the family restored to harmony, but peace is also reached between the rival Christian sects. Unlike Day of Wrath, Audette is filmed as far as possible with a one-shot-per-scene approach, 
the camera slowly glides around the room like a silent observer. A character can disappear near the start of a shot and reappear several minutes later during the same shot. We can be disorientated by the sudden appearance of a character in a position other than what we have been led by conventional filmmaking to expect. Only in the funeral and resurrection scene does Dry resort to the conventional shot-counter-shot approach, almost as if normal editing is needed when abnormal events occur. At the 1960 Cannes Film Festival, Antonioni's La Ventura caused a near riot by uncomprehending spectators. By 1962, it had come second in Sight and Sound's critics' poll of best-ever films. Gert, uh, Dreyer's Gertrude, another modernist masterpiece, had a similar early history. The booing spectators at its Paris premiere thought the 75-year-old director had gone quite senile with an utterly boring piece of filmed theatre about people sitting on sofas having conversations in monotonous voices. Yet, while never achieving the commercial success of La Ventura, Gertrude soon became an established, if seldom screened, favourite among arthouse patrons and, and critics. In my view, it is an exquisite and quite perfect work of art. Gertrude is another of Dreyer's strong, independent women, who, in her forties and married to a government minister, come to the conviction that no man, not even her busy husband, is prepared to devote himself totally to her, and that she therefore prefers to live alone and without love. The stationary shots of sofa conversations lasting up to nine minutes contain virtually no physical movement, yet the violent emotional turmoil in Gertrude's heart when she discovers, for example, that her young lover regards her as just another conquest can leave the attentive viewer quite breathless. The slow, expressionless speaking style and the fact that characters hardly ever look at one another add to the emotional intensity. And again, Dreyer disorientates us with his unorthodox editing. Typically, a character leaving the frame cuts to a door where we expect him or her to exit, but instead another character enters. And just as Audet presents us with a variety of religious opinions, so Gertrude offers us a variety of opinions about love. Carl Dreyer's lifetime ambition was to make a film about the life of Christ, for which he wrote the script but could not get, get the finance. That would have been something to see, and doubtless quite different from the attempts by Cecil B. Bill, B. DeMille, Nicholas Ray, Martin Scorsese, Stevens and others. At any rate, we have some wonderful drier films to be going along with. Hello, my name is Alan Pavlin and I want to talk about editing in films. There's a film called Russian Ark, directed by Alexander so Sokharov, uh, came out in 2002, which was the first feature film to be 
shot in a single unbroken take lasting 90 minutes. Um, it, it revisited an issue which in one form or another goes right back to the beginnings of cinema. Do films represent reality viewed in a continuous real-time manner as we see real life or are they artificial constructs reliant on on edi editing and special effects designed to manipulate the viewer do we prefer the lumiere brothers 1895 uh, film lasting just a few uh, a few seconds really called workers leaving the, Lum the lumiere factory to Melier's almost as old film, 1902, Trip to the Moon. Not that many of us have seen it either. To put it simplistically, long take or short take? The most distinguished theoretical exponents of these rival positions were the critic André Bazin and the director Sergei Eisenstein. The latter Eisenstein developed the theory of montage by which, in which by careful editing and arrangement of shots one can create a desired emotional impact on the viewer deriving philosophically from Hegel's concept of the dialectic. Eisenstein did this for didactic or propaganda purposes most famously the Odessa Steps sequence of Battleship Potemkin from 1925, and the cross-cutting between Kerensky and a peacock in October, made in 1928. Bazin, on the other hand, championed the films of directors like Renoir, Wells and Weiler, who, with the aid of deep-focus photography, saw no need for frequent cutting because they could show simultaneously two or more actions at varying distances from the camera. Bazin regarded this as realism, which he links with the Italian neorealist movement of the late 1940s, directors like Rossellini and De Sica, and their documentary-style films. In one sense, of course, all films are artificial even the most apparently spontaneous documentary with minimal editing involves selection as to what will appear in the finished film. Flaherty's 1933 film Man of Aaron, for example, involved carefully rehearsing the, quote, actors, unquote, in a representation of the hardships which their forebears, and they, not they themselves, had to endure. The authentic tuna fishing sequence of Rossellini's 1949 film Stromboli has a Hollywood star, Ingrid Bergman, sitting in one of the boats. But this is not the point. Given that films are unavoidably artificial constructs, should cutting and editing within scenes be kept to a minimum? In some cases, clearly not. The films of Eisenstein have already been referred to. The conventional thriller generally needs cross-cutting to maintain suspense. A director like Jean-Luc Godard, 
who likes to keep reminding the viewers that they are watching a film, deliberately uses techniques, including unnecessary cuts, but also tedious long takes, to drive home that point. Robert Bresson, Alfred Hitchcock, Krzysztof Kieslowski, Akira Kurosawa and Yasujiro Ozu are examples of great directors for whom editing was of supreme importance and for the first two and for the first two of whom Bresson and Hitchcock actors were merely models or cattle as Hitchcock described them. I would maintain however that most modern films are over edited. <clears throat> Watch a typical Hollywood movie of 60 or 60 or so years ago and compare it with one today you will almost certainly find that the average length of a shot has at least halved quite unnecessarily reasons include suiting the shape of the tv screen making life easier for actors and pandering to lower attention spans a conversation between two or more characters nowadays often involves as many cuts as there are changes of speaker which was never the case with the great comedies and melodramas of the 1930s, 40s and 50s. For me, a cut every five seconds or so breaks the flow of a scene. For this reason, many of my favourite films tend to the one-shot-per-scene variety, where the total number of shots approximates to the number of minutes running time instead of exceeding it twentyfold. This is what Kenji Mizuguchi, great Japanese director, strove for in his sublime 1939 film Story of the Late Chrysanthemums, as did the Danish director Carl Theodor Dreyer in Audette from 1955 and Gertrude 1964. Audette in particular has the camera slowly roaming around like an extra character so that we feel we are in the room participating in the drama. Manipulative, certainly, but more real than cutting with every change of speaker. Directors like Tarkovsky, particularly his last three films, Angelopoulos, with his superb choreography of groups or crowds of people, and Bella Tarr, whose eight-minute shot of cows lumbering into a field at the start of his mammoth 1994 film Satan Tango might be thought excessive, can also be mentioned. Tarkovsky wrote on this subject in his book Sculpting in Time, in which his disdain for, for his compatriot Eisenstein's methods is apparent. A one-act play would seem the most appropriate source for a single shot real-time film and this is what Alfred Hitchcock attempted in his 1948 film Rope. As is well known he tried to get round the 10 minute restriction on length of take by focusing on say a close-up of somebody's dark suit as the end of the piece of film approached. The result is generally considered a failure with the viewer watching out for the next join to appear. One can admire it as a technical achievement, not least by the actors. Personally, I, I prefer Hitchcock's other long-take film, Under Capricorn, 1949, shot in a less 
formulaic manner than rope. So what about Russian Ark, with its modern technology enabling a 90-minute take? Sokhorov's conducted tour of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, accompanied by a pageant of characters from Russian history, is certainly stunningly beautiful and an amazing achievement when one considers that it involved the choreography of over 1,000 actors for an hour and a half with the Steadicam operator continually on the move. Towards the end, with the camera continually prowling around dancers and orchestra, there is one of the great ball scenes of cinema, comparable to those of Orson Welles's The Magnificent Ambersons and Visconti's The Leopard, which were not shot in unbroken takes. Um, the film, the film uh, Russian Ark, is however somewhat obscure for those not versed in Russian history and in the way that Russians traditionally see themselves as an orthodox bridge between the Catholic West and the Tatar hordes from, from the East. Complicated by the fact that St Petersburg is essentially a Western city. But as the minutes became an hour or more in Russian Ark, I found myself longing for a cut, as, just as an itch longs for a scratch. Was this just conditioning from watching thousands of films, all with numerous cuts? Is this a sign that cinema can never approach too close to reality? That's an interesting thought on which to finish. Hello, my name is Alan Pavlin, and I want to talk about editing in films. There's a film called Russian Ark, directed by Alexander so Sokharov, uh, came out in 2002, which was the first feature film to be shot in a single, unbroken take, lasting 90 minutes. Um, it it revisited an issue which, in one form or another, goes right back to the beginnings of cinema. Do films represent reality, viewed in a continuous, real-time manner as we see real life, or are they artificial constructs reliant on, on edi editing and special effects designed to manipulate the viewer? Do we prefer the Lumiere Brothers 1895 uh, film, lasting just a few, uh, a few seconds really, called Workers Leaving the, Lum the Lumiere Factory, to Melier's almost as old film, 1902, Trip to the Moon. Not that many of us have seen it either. To put it simplistically, long take or short take, the most distinguished theoretical exponents of these rival positions were the critic André Bazin and the director Sergei Eisenstein. The latter, Eisenstein, developed the theory of montage by which, in which by careful editing and arrangement of shots one can create a desired emotional impact on the viewer, deriving philosophically 
from Hegel's concept of the dialectic. Eisenstein did this for didactic or propaganda purposes, most famously the Odessa Steps sequence of Battleship Potemkin from 1925 and the cross-cutting between Kerensky and a peacock in October, made in 1928. Bazin, on the other hand, championed the films of directors like Renoir, Wells and Weiler, who, with the aid of deep-focus photography, saw no need for frequent cutting because they could show simultaneously two or more actions at varying distances from the camera. Bazin regarded this as realism, which he links with the Italian neorealist movement of the late 1940s, directors like Rossellini and De Sica, and their documentary-style films. In one sense, of course, all films are artificial, even the most apparently spontaneous documentary with minimal editing involves selection as to what will appear in the finished film. Flaherty's 1933 film Man of Aaron, for example, involved carefully rehearsing the, quote, actors, unquote, in a representation of the hardships which their forebears, and they, not they themselves, had to endure. The authentic tuna fishing sequence of Rossellini's 1949 film Stromboli has a Hollywood star, Ingrid Bergman, sitting in one of the boats. But this is not the point. Given that films are unavoidably artificial constructs, should cutting and editing within scenes be kept to a minimum? In some cases, clearly not. The films of Eisenstein have already been referred to. The conventional thriller generally needs cross-cutting to maintain suspense. A director like Jean-Luc Godard, who likes to keep reminding the viewers that they are watching a film, deliberately uses techniques, including unnecessary cuts, but also tedious long takes, to drive home that point. Robert Bresson, Alfred Hitchcock... Krzysztof Kieslowski, Akira Kurosawa and Yasujiro Ozu are examples of great directors for whom editing was of supreme importance and for the first two and for the first two of whom Bresson and Hitchcock actors were merely models or cattle as Hitchcock described them I would maintain however that most modern films are over-edited <clears throat> Watch a typical Hollywood movie of 60 or, 60 or so years ago and compare it with one today. You will almost certainly find that the average length of a shot has at least halved quite unnecessarily. Reasons include suiting the shape of the TV screen, making life easier for actors and pandering to lower attention spans. A conversation between two or more characters nowadays often involved as many cuts as there are changes of speaker, which was never the case with the great comedies and melodramas of the 1930s, 40s and 50s. For me, a cut every five seconds or so breaks the flow of a scene. For this reason, many of my favourite films tend to the one-shot-per-scene variety. 
where the total number of shots approximates to the number of minutes running time instead of exceeding it 20-fold. This is what Kenji Mizuguchi, great Japanese director, strove for in his sublime 1939 film Story of the Late Chrysanthemums, as did the Danish director Carl Theodor Dreyer in Audet from 1955 and Gertrude 1964. Audet in particular has the camera slowly roaming around like an extra character so that we feel we are in the room participating in the drama. Manipulative certainly, but more real than cutting with every change of speaker. Directors like Tarkovsky, particularly his last three films, Angelopoulos with his superb choreography of groups or crowds of people, and Bella Tarr, whose eight-minute shot of cows lumbering into a field at the start of his mammoth 1994 film Satan Tango, might be thought excessive, can also be mentioned. Tarkovsky wrote on this subject in his book Sculpting in Time, in which his disdain for, for his compatriot Eisenstein's methods is apparent. A one-act play would seem the most appropriate source for a single-shot real-time film, and this is what Alfred Hitchcock attempted in his 1948 film Rope. As is well known, he tried to get round the ten-minute restriction on length of take by focusing on, say, a close-up of somebody's dark suit as the end of the piece of film approached. The result is generally considered a failure, with the viewer watching out for the next join to appear. One can admire it as a technical achievement, not least by the actors. Personally, I I prefer Hitchcock's other long-take film, Under Capricorn, 1949, shot in a less formulaic manner than Rope. So what about Russian Ark, with its modern technology enabling a 90-minute take? Sokhorov's conducted tour of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, accompanied by a pageant of characters from Russian history, is certainly stunningly beautiful and an amazing achievement when one considers that it involved the choreography of over 1,000 actors for an hour and a half with the Steadicam operator continually on the move. Towards the end, with the camera continually prowling around dancers and orchestra, there is one of the great ball scenes of cinema comparable to those of Orson Welles's The Magnificent Ambersons and Visconti's The Leopard, which were not shot in unbroken takes. Um, the film, the film uh, Russian Ark, is however somewhat obscure for those not versed in Russian history and in the way that Russians traditionally see themselves as an orthodox bridge between the Catholic West and the Tartar hordes from, from the east, complicated by the fact that St. Petersburg is essentially a western city. But as the minutes became an hour or more in Russian Ark, I found myself longing for a cut, as, just as an itch longs for a scratch.
Was this just conditioning from watching thousands of films, all with numerous cuts? Is this a sign that cinema can never approach too close to reality? That's an interesting thought on which to finish.